All right, folks, I think we'll go ahead and get started. We're gonna be a small and intimate group, I think. Um, I, I appreciate you guys making the trek all the way to the back of the convention center this late in the meeting. Um, I would also just note that we are gonna be recording this session and AAR will publish it as a podcast sometime in the next few months. So just to be aware of that. Um, and one of the things that makes me really happy about that is, you know, uh, we were just talking amongst ourselves up front here about how this conversation is still a hard one to have, particularly for the uh, students and early career scholars who are thinking about making a move to a non-academic path. And sometimes they're not comfortable having that conversation in public yet. Um, this session at last year's American Academy of Religion annual meeting was posted fairly recently to their podcast channel, but has more listens online than any other podcast on the channel from last year's annual meeting. So people are finding this material online and listening to it sort of at their leisure and when they're ready. Um, but I'm looking forward to having a conversation today with uh, the panelists who were able to join us in person. Um, I do want to note Sarah McFarland Taylor of Northwestern and Sylvia Chan Malik of Rutgers unfortunately could not join us today. Um, scheduling snafus and other things. So hopefully I will rope them in at a later session at a later date. Um, but the folks who did brave the Colorado weather, two, three local folks, or at least relatively local folks, which is exciting. Um, I'm going to go in alphabetical order. That's the way my brain works. So we've got Paul Harvey, who is president, uh, professor and presidential teaching scholar in the Department of History at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, and a scholar of race and religion in the United States. Patrick Mason, sort of center at the table, is Dean of the School of Arts and Humanities at Claremont Graduate University, Professor of Religion and Howard W. Hunter Chair of Mormon Studies, and a scholar of American Religious History, Peace Studies, and Global Fundamentalisms. Nathan Schneider, all the way down at the opposite end from me, is an Assistant Professor of Media Studies in the College of Media Communication and Information at the University of Colorado, and a reporter who writes about religion, technology, and resistance. And immediately to my right is Annette Stott, a new member of the Applied Religious Studies Committee who uh, agreed to step in kindly at the last minute. Uh, she's a professor of art history at the University of Denver and director of the Denver University Iliff School of Theology joint doctoral program in religion. Uh, she's a scholar of American art and religion, uh, women in art and art collections history with a strong emphasis on diversity. And I'm Christine Hutchison-Jones. I hold a PhD from Boston University, also in American Religious History. There are a bunch of us up here at the front today. Um, and I decided before I had finished my comps that I thought the academic job market did not look like a place I wanted to be for a wide variety of reasons. I liked living in Boston. I didn't want to move. Um, there were things about the academy that looked like it might not be the best fit for me which I think is a thing that we don't encourage students to consider enough. Um, and I think I got there on my own as early as I did because I was already working in a full-time staff position while I was in my doctoral program. So I'm now the administrative director of a research center at Harvard Law School that focuses on health law policy and bioethics. And in all of my copious free time, I'm the chair of the Applied Religious Studies Committee here at AAR. Um, since the beginning of 2017, we've been working really, really hard to sort of throw AAR into high gear on providing more supports and more space for conversation around um, the exploration and pursuit of non-academic careers for scholars of religion and theology. So we're not gonna have formal presentations today. I would really just like to have an open conversation with our panelists. Um, and 
I think it's really important, although much of this content is directed at people who are looking to get out of the academy, and of course, these folks are very much in the academy. Um, one thing that a lot of people who are considering non-academic careers say over and over is that they're afraid to let their faculty find out. They're afraid that their faculty will stop supporting them in their research. They're afraid that they won't get the teaching assignments or research assignments that they need to support them as they continue in their programs. And um, they also have a very strong sense that faculty can't or won't support non-academic searches. So um, I'm really glad you're all here with me today to show that that's not how all faculty feel and that a lot of faculty not only recognize the realities of the job market, but also I think that it's fair to say that you recognize that, especially since we've got a very interdisciplinary panel, not everybody wants to be an academic in religious studies. And there are a lot of options outside of the academy. Um, so let's start with, do you have students or have you had students who are exploring non-academic opportunities? And why are they doing that? I would say that I hope we have students who are exploring non-academic opportunities. Um, and the joint program, though we are being proactive about creating space for these conversations, uh, for, for two major reasons, sort of a push and a pull, one being the obvious need for scholars or just for people who understand um, religion and how it functions in society within our society in many, many different arenas. Um, and the other is that we are producing more PhDs across the country than ever before in the study of religion for fewer tenure track jobs than ever before. So when you put those two together, you should start looking at the PhD as a road towards many, many different opportunities for teaching. It doesn't have have to happen in the academy. So we're um, being proactive in that we have a grant to help us think about three specific areas that we thought seemed the most logical for our particular situation in terms of preparing faculty as well as students. One of those is the intersection of technology and religion. One is the intersection of museums and religion or memorials and religion. And the third is kind of hybrid positions that may be in the academy but aren't tenure track. And that's in many ways the hardest one to approach. So um, in approaching this, what we've been doing is offering symposia to faculty and students to come together and to hear from professionals in those fields. Because as a faculty member, one of the things that I find hardest is just imagining how am I going to help somebody else prepare for something I never prepared for? Right. I don't feel very competent to do that, and I think uh, my colleagues feel the same. So in the symposium, we did the first one on technology and religion. We do have a group of faculty who are working at that intersection, training themselves to do coding and to think differently because of that way in. And so we brought in people in the profession, alumni who have gone into um, gone in that direction, head of IT at a, a school of theology, for instance. Um, and they talked about their jobs, how happy they are 
in their positions, what kinds of things they're doing, how the skills that they learned in their PhD programs were transferable. And they're really using those skills. They really need the knowledge of religion or theology. Um, so that was a, a great morning. We also provided some statistics about uh, what are average salaries in um, beginning positions, which are usually adjunct kind of teaching, um, but also beginning assistant professor level, and in more IT type positions that are at that intersection. And then in the afternoon, we all did coding. We all learned how to code Python, which I've never done and truly did not have great enthusiasm for. But it was a, it was a great way to help us to start to understand from the inside out what this might look like. And about five students at the end of that symposium signed up to do ongoing every Friday workshops in Python to learn more about the, this idea. So that's great. It's a long, it. long explanation for Well, no, question. I love that. And I love the hands-on practical aspect to it too. That's great. Moving down the table. Yeah, sure. So, uh, so I teach at Claremont Graduate University. So we're, we're a kind of unique place because it's uh, all graduate. Uh, and uh, we are certainly contributing to the, uh, to the problem that you, that you mentioned of uh, producing a lot of uh, graduate students, not just in religion, but uh, in, in all of the humanities uh, in, in the midst of a, a weak job market, a perpetually weak job market uh, academically. And so we, we've recognized that, and so we're, we're trying to address it. And so I'm dean right now of the School of Arts and Humanities, and so we, we see this as not just a religion issue, but it's for all of our humanities departments. So it's for history and English and cultural studies. I mean, they're all facing roughly similar things. And, they all, and we train them with, with uh, very similar skills. Uh, and and so, so for us, it's been helpful to have, it, have the conversation across uh, the humanities uh, and not just isolated within each department. Of course, there are particularities, and I think different student, religion students may be more inclined to do certain kinds of uh, careers outside the academy than English students, but maybe not. Uh, and, and so we're, we're trying to be sensitive to the kind of particularity as well as the, the generality. But, you know, you'd asked if, if we have students who, who are doing this, and, and, and we do. Um, I think about even just some of my own uh, students. So I'd, um, uh, Christy, you mentioned, you know, the fear that sometimes students have of, of being willing to confess, you know, to, to their faculty member that they may not, uh, that they may want something other than a tenure track job. So I was working with one of my students a couple years ago. He was into his dissertation phase. Uh, really strong student, uh, very solid, done well through coursework, uh, flew through qualifying exams and was uh, writing his dissertation. And we sat down in an advising meeting and he sort of tentatively said, uh, you know, I just said, let's, you know, we're, we're at the time now, we should, we should uh, really get thinking seriously about, about uh, you know, uh, career and what that's going to look like. And, and he, uh, he said, well, you know, I actually don't really want a tenure track faculty uh, position. Um, and partly because I've been coming to these kinds of events, right? So I've, I've learned. Uh, so it's, my response was, great, terrific. What do you, what do you want to do? And, and what he wanted to do was work in a research library. And so we worked on that together. We, we uh, uh, worked hard on this. I you know, made contacts with some of the people there. And uh, he finished his dissertation and got his dream job. He got exactly what he wanted. Uh, we've had, uh, I have another one of my students who, 
uh, very talented guy who's in the midst of, of uh, writing his dissertation, who's had a series of positions. Uh, I swear this guy's going to be president of the United States someday, and, and I hope sooner rather than later. Um, but uh, but he, he was a, a staffer uh, uh, for a West Hollywood City Council person, and then be, he became uh, the the uh, legislative liaison for LAX Airport. Uh, now he now he's working as a, a director for Planned Parenthood, right? All while finishing his PhD in, in religion, right? And and this is there's no he's not going to go into the academy, right? He has a career uh, uh, in in front of him, and and this is terrific. So the way we're thinking about his dissertation is is a little bit different. Um, and I, I would say that as we've been trying to do this and, and sort of change the cultural mindset among the faculty uh, to say it's, it's not sort of the tenure track is plan A and everything else is secondary, but, but that all career options, you know, we want to support students in, in all the things that they want to do. Um, I think we've, for the most part, successfully changed this cultural mindset. I think there are some issues still if sometimes faculty feel like, well, this is the only career I've had, right? How do I train people for careers other than what I have? But I don't think it's that much different than reading papers on things that we're not experts in. I mean, we, we all do that. Uh, and and so, so I think it's the kind of creativity, the being willing to, to do a little research uh, and, and go outside of our comfort zones. But where the, the last thing I'll say for now is where it has really affected it and kind of our cultural mindset. So we're not only dealing with this on the kind of back end. So when the student comes in and is writing her dissertation and, and then we have that career conversation. But now it's changed the way we do admissions. Uh, so we're taking this into account on the front end. And so now when students apply to us and say, uh, so, so just our incoming class uh, right now, we had a guy, he, he wants to be a film producer. And we said, terrific, great. Right? And he wants to get a PhD in religion because he wants to produce films and documentaries on religion and American culture and wants to be an expert in the subject. And we said, great. So he, he doesn't want to change the field or write the dissertation or the book that, that changes the field. He wants to do something else. And we felt very comfortable in admitting him into the program from the very beginning, thinking about career diversity from day one. Um, same way, uh, <laughs> other students are like that as well. A, a guy who's a practicing rabbi right now. Um, and uh, he's already gone through and gotten his, uh, his training there and it, he has his rabbinical ordination, but he wanted a religious studies degree in, in addition to that. And so, uh, so we can be supportive of, of that, of, of uh, his current career. And so, so it's, uh, that has been, I think, gratifying, it's exciting. And, and, I, and actually the faculty are energized by it. And they're seeing that these students who are coming in with already diverse careers in mind they are enhancing the classroom experience and enhancing the cohort. Uh, and so the faculty are actually really energized by this. Uh, and um, uh, so, so it's exciting to see. So I'm in a little bit of a different position because I'm in an MA granting institution. We don't actually have PhDs in the humanities at uh, UCCS. That's what they do at Boulder. You guys give the PhDs in humanities. We have other PhDs in sciences, but not in the humanities. But, we do have an MA program. As it happens, I'm a historian trained in history. I do religious history, so I come to this thing, but I'm a historian first and foremost by training. And so I'm thinking about uh, this question from the perspective of students who mostly are not intending to go into academics in the first place because they're coming to get MAs for all kinds of reasons. Some of them are high school teachers. They want to get a better salary with a better, uh, because they have, now have a better degree. Some of them are military officers and 
they're a captain and they want to be a major or whatever, something like that. Um, and some of them just are professional students and they're, not, they, and they're not intending to go into academics permanently, but they're not quite sure what to do. And they just got our BA, so they just continue on and, and they get their MA. And I start talking to them early about different kinds of career options. That being said, we do have a, some students who, uh, despite all of our warnings and sometimes discouragements, end up going for the, for the PhD. Uh, but we let them know early on, you better have a plan B and you, actually your plan B probably should be your plan A because that's a pretty good chance that that's going to happen. As it happens, I'm thinking about some examples of those that have gone off from our program, gone to other places, got a PhD, one of whom is the director of cultural programming for the Cleveland Art Museum, one of whom is a foreign service officer current, currently serving in uh, Mexico, I believe, last time I checked. Um, Let's see, one of them, another of them also works for the State Department. One of them is the federal, um, I don't know what his title is, but he's, he's basically the head of history for the National Guard, the, the chief of the National Guard historian. Every state has its National Guard uh, units and every state has its own historian. He used to be the state of Colorado historian for the National Guard, and then he became the federal National Guard historian, which is one of the highest ranked federal positions in the federal uh, government's ranking, GS, whatever, I don't know the number, but it's, it's very high up there. And he makes a lot more than I do uh, doing, doing that job and more power to him for, for that. Uh, and no, none of these people, I could give other examples, but none of these people ended up in these positions because I advised them to do anything other than just to think about other kinds of stuff they could do outside of academics. What they did is they figured out what they needed to do to get there what's required to pass the foreign service exam, study for that, what's required to advance through the ranks of the military such that your state of Colorado National Guard history position can become a federal uh, position at a much higher federal government rank, um, what to do to become cultural programming director of a, of a well-known art museum, uh, like the Cleveland Art Museum. I'm not quite sure what she did to, to do that actually because I, this was a student from many years ago, uh, but, but she managed to pull that off. In many other cases, they receive our MA and uh, it's a terminal MA degree and that's what they, they intend to terminate it there. And, and many of them actually come in saying that they intend to go on and we describe what academics looks like going on and many of them decide after two years, that's plenty, that's, that's enough of the academic world and they've kind of got what they wanted from that. And they can, they can see the good points and they can see the minuses as well. And so they're, they begin thinking through uh, by themselves alternative career options. In the case of, and I was thinking about this before the event today, in the case of history, there's like a track, like a museum track, a public history track, working for the National Park Service, working for a museum. So every museum in the Colorado Springs area, and there are quite a few, every one of them is, is the director of it is one of our MA graduates. So there's been many, and sometimes there's lower level personnel in these museums that are that are our MA graduates as well. The director of the Colorado History Center has a number, she's not one of our MA graduates, she has a number of sort of second and third in command that, that come from our MA program. Uh, so there is that kind of track that is not unusual for history. There's not exactly the same thing maybe for uh, religion scholars. On the other hand, as you just said, Patrick, 
some of this just is a pan humanities thing that is not all that uh, discipline specific. So there's no reason that a religion scholar couldn't do some of these museum type work. The thing that you have to do to do that is start early, get internships and kind of work your way up through the system. So we've recently had the Olympic, National Olympic Training Center open its uh, Olympic History Center basically uh, in downtown Colorado Springs and has a magnificent archive of basically the history of the Olympics. And so we've had some students who began interning there, fell in love with it, became full-time paid interns, uh, and then have then vaulted from there to other kinds of pretty impressive uh, public history, public archive, public humanities, I would say, um, positions. So uh, I can't claim credit for any of this other than to plant the seed that be thinking about this. And in addition to doing all the stuff that you have to do for my class, um, think about what other kind of skill that you would need to know because there's something outside of what I'm teaching you that you're probably gonna need to know to get where you want to go. Figure out what that is and figure out what you need to do to get to that place. Um, and uh, the guy that I mentioned is the foreign service officer in Mexico City as it turns out, but he actually uh, began taking Chinese and learned Chinese well enough to uh, possibly serve in the, in the foreign service in China. It was something that he was interested in, in doing at one point and may still do in the future. So turn it over to you, Nathan. Okay. Um, well, not only do I have students uh, interested in non-academic careers, but I, I was such a student. Uh, I uh, left my PhD program in religious studies, which I loved, but um, I felt a craving for uh, doing more kind of engaged work at that point in my life and, and um, uh, moved to New York and worked as a journalist for most of a decade. Um, always very informed by that training uh, and, and uh, uh, driven by it. I continued attending the AAR, I think every single year, maybe missing one. Uh, uh, while I was um, uh, while I was working as a journalist and really appreciated it, um, continued relationships uh, with the academic uh, context, and uh, part of that too was actually, um, uh, uh, you know, I, I think I can claim to say, showing my former professors the value of having someone out of the program doing something other than also being a professor. Um, and initially that process was hard and some of those conversations were hard. Um, but, you know, over time, I think that, um, uh, you know, there came to be a kind of mutual appreciation of, of, that, of that path. And that's something that I think is crucial to being able to advise and work with students who are thinking of non-academic uh, trajectories is for faculty members themselves to recognize uh, the potential value to them and their program of having former students who are doing stuff other than what they do. Um, uh, the, the, the recognition that this can provide means of access to communities that might be of interest, uh, that it might be intellectually stimulating to, to uh, reconnect uh, over the years. And uh, uh, for the institution itself to recognize in its incentive structures and in, in its uh, sense of what it values, uh, 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 having people with advanced degrees um, working outside of the university context, I think is crucial. Um, in, in my department now, which is a, a media studies department, um, different field, but actually in, in many ways 
quite familiar to to what I experience in religious studies. You know, it's a discipline at the intersection of humanities and social sciences. It's it's uh, a multidisciplinary field, really. Um, it is uh, uh, something without a obvious career path uh, outside of um, of of the field itself. Um, uh, yet, uh, I found that uh, coming into this program at, at um, CU Boulder, uh, there was already a kind of craving for, um, uh, for uh, uh, developing competency and training uh, uh, non-academic uh, 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 graduates of our graduate programs. One, one step that uh, I think is really important for that was developing a terminal MA um, that is oriented uh, toward both academic and non-academic uh, careers, and 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 includes work, you know, as the final product uh, project and and as coursework that is not simply academic, right? That where where students, if they're pursuing an academic trajectory, can do papers that might be publishable, um, but they're not required to, and other forms of media interventions are are uh, encouraged and valued alongside those. Um, and we've, we've found that um, uh, these courses for this MA program have become uh, popular with our, our PhD students. Uh, so the PhD students appreciate the chance to, um, you know, to, to, to work in that community and in that framework. And I think also just the community that forms among them has opened uh, the minds of uh, uh, PhD students to see uh, uh, options for themselves um, beyond uh, uh, simply that, that academic track. Um, you know, I, I think it's really important for us to, to envision an academy that is a little more porous. Um, a, a vital ingredient to this kind of approach is having uh, a faculty who have gone in and out, right? Who have worked in contexts other, um, uh, other than the academy and thus can be better positioned to advise uh, for, for such roles. And, and, you know, to that end, our department has been hiring people who, you know, have that kind of varied experience. Um, and, um, uh, and that also, it just, uh, if we uh, have that porosity in how we ourselves operate, it becomes just much more natural to advise students in a way that uh, doesn't have that culture of fear around uh, around non-academic roles. We really shouldn't have that culture of fear. The PhD is a powerful, uh, as is the MA, a powerful uh, tool in a variety of contexts. I certainly appreciated my graduate training when I was working as a journalist and um, uh, found myself feeling kind of astonished at how valuable it was, how it changed people's perceptions of me and my perceptions of, of myself in that work. Um, and I think if we, um, in a sense, give ourselves more credit uh, uh, for what an academic uh, degree can uh, uh, can provide to people. You know, uh, this this uh, challenge, this task, uh, becomes easier than it might seem at first glance. So I'm really struck on this panel um, by the fact, you know, often this conversation is dominated by, well, we have to talk about this because the job market for academic positions is so bad. But every one of you has pointed to the value of graduate studies in religion and the humanities more broadly to the world outside the academy. Um, that's really refreshing, thank you. So I just wonder what has brought each of you to a place where that's how you're framing it? Because I've actually been 
You know, as I've been conversing with people at the AAR for several years about this now, trying to push that perspective, we shouldn't just be talking about saving people from a bad job market on the, on the academic track. We should be talking about all of the things that scholars of religion and the humanities bring to the world and how much we're needed in other spaces. So um, since I don't think I've encountered like a room full of people who talk that way without me like waving my banner first, please tell me how you, how you each got here. This is really exciting for me. <laughs> I think there is a lot of conversation around this uh, right now. I mean, if, if you read the Chronicle or in, Inside Higher Ed or lots of, lots of other publications, uh, I mean, it's, I, I can't go more than a few days without the director of our career development office sending me another story from the CEO of Verizon or some executive at Google or somebody like that saying this exact thing, right? That, you know, so STEM dominated the conversation for the past decade, decade and a half, right? And, um, but, but there's, there's now been a recognition from people, including in many of those uh, STEM and, and corporate uh, in, industries, that, uh, that training people just with highly specialized skills in those particular areas, uh, they're missing out on certain things that the humanities provide, right? And we've sort of been saying this for a long time, um, but I, th I think uh, as humanists, we've generally been too defensive about this. Uh, I, I think we haven't always learned how to, to value and give ourselves credit, uh, as you say. And so I think uh, maybe there's an emerging consciousness and confidence uh, around this. Now, at the same time, what, what a lot of these uh, employers and, and, and the ones that, that I talk to, is, I don't talk to the CEO of Verizon, uh, but, but, but the, the more local ones that we do talk to, they said, yes, we love all of the skills that your graduate students bring from religious studies or the other humanities, but they still have to know if, if, if they're going to be a, a great employee in, in my business in order to get, to get a great first job, they still need to know how to, to read or create a spreadsheet. Or they need how to, you know, there's some other set of skills that they need that, that we probably didn't teach them uh, in our religious studies seminars. And so that's where I think we need to be a little bit more creative in, in thinking about not abandoning the core of what we do. And I actually think being very confident about what we do uh, and the translatability of those skills. We are teaching skills. That's one of the other things that, that we're trying to talk about as a faculty is we're not just teaching content. We're teaching skills. Uh, in, in our uh, seminars that are translatable in lots of different contexts. We should feel confident about that. We should help the graduate students uh, be able to put that into language that they could use with potential employers, but they do need to supplement what we're teaching them with other things. So whether it be like you talked about, the kinds of things that you need to, to direct a museum or, you know, so the graduate students need to be a little bit proactive about this. I think we can provide some things in the curriculum. I can talk about that a little bit later in terms of the things that we're trying to do. Um, but, but there needs to be a kind of both and approach. I think watching the news is enough to convince one that there's a real need huh. out there. Um, but also talking with students and uh, seeing how fulfilled they are in the ways that they find to apply their education to um, try to make the world a better world, which is the desire of so many of our students. So no matter what it is that they've ended up doing, seeing how fulfilling that that can be is, is really very rewarding. So students who are 
um, in nonprofits, for instance, or who have taken what they've learned and are turning that around working in government agencies, um, museums, memorials, doing publishing. There's just so many different places where that kind of a background combined with other skills and with other experiences, which I've also been hearing um, you all saying that students are often compelled to volunteer their time outside of school or to do an internship because that's something that they're really, really interested in and it may not be something that coursework is gonna cover at all. And frequently that's the direction that a student will end up going. You combine those passions with all of the other skills and knowledge and you end up with a different pathway. I have very much the same answer as, as um, the, the, the previous two because I think I was guilty of doing this until probably six or seven years ago. You better do this because everything else in this business sucks and like that kind of thing. And, um, I, and, and I had a colleague point out to me one time the, the variety of things that our graduates were doing. And I'd never kind of put that together, but I had to put it together at the time because I was compiling some sort of dossier for some kind of award or something. And then you have to list students and what all they're doing. And I was like, damn, these students are really doing this. I hadn't thought about that. And I suddenly got sort of excited about it. And then I thought about the conversations that I had with them where they had a degree of enthusiasm for the thing that they were doing at the time that they never expressed to me when they were getting a PhD at their other institution besides mine or uh, more enthusiastic than they were about my MA class when they took it from me, which they did and they did fine and everything, but it wasn't, it didn't sort of set them on fire. And what what they were doing at the time, uh, they, they clearly had come to understand as something that was deeply meaningful to them. And they understood that they could do it in part because of the training either I provided or someone else provided or some other institution provided and their humanities education in general provided. Um, but um, they, they, they had come to understand that they could apply that in these other contexts that they didn't realize. And it was more exciting to them than the, the more traditional context. Mm -hmm. Yeah, following the, the sort of energy and passion that the students have. I mean, I, we've found that. I mean, they really have led the way on, on a lot of this. Exactly. I think part of the challenge, to, too, in order to protect the space for this kind of thing is, is recognizing, you know, again, to the point of skills, um, that the things that a PhD uh, program teaches one to value about oneself might not be the things that you lead with uh, beyond. Um, but that those skills are being taught, um, or some of them at least. Um, for instance, one thing that I uh, uh, noticed in the first years of my time outside of the academy was, was at first I thought like the thing I had done my, my main research on was going to be you know, the first thing I would charge into, right? Um, that, you know, we're taught to, in a PhD program, to highly value that tiny contribution that we're making in our dissertation to, uh, you know, a very kind of particular conversation. Um, when in fact, you're learning a tremendous amount of background knowledge in order to make that tiny contribution um, so that you know all the rest of the stuff uh, uh, that um, is necessary to put those pieces together. and. I found when I was working as a reporter, actually all that background stuff ended up being much more important than the particular uh, argument I had been making about perceptions of cognitive science of religion uh, at the time, right? And um, 
uh, and that the, the habits and frameworks and, and general stuff I had picked up over the course of that work uh, mattered more. So, so uh, when graduate students do come to me thinking about some of these things, I often find myself having to invert you know, the pyramid of their, of their uh, self-understanding a little bit and, and you know, ask them a bit more about what is it, what else have you picked up in the course of this program that's gonna be of value um, and and you know then they start seeing possibilities that they otherwise might not have seen. I'm also really struck by the fact that several of you talked about um, talking to students on the front end, um, whether that's Paul, you're already talking to students in an MA before they launch potentially into a PhD program and maybe even discouraging them from doing that because do you really have to do the PhD to do the thing you love yeah. and want to do? Yeah. Um, or talking about how Claremont is actually starting to admit students who don't want an academic outcome. And Nathan, it sounds like you've got folks who are coming in and you're encouraging that as well. Um, you know, that again, I think is a little bit extraordinary. Um, what led you or what led your programs to start to do this more, um, particularly with like, hey, we're going to admit people into the graduate program who don't want to go teach. Um, I think that's that's there's a lot of conversation around how the academy is self perpetuating and professors train more professors and it's really hard to get people out of that mindset and yet you've done it in your spaces. So how did that happen? Sort of what brought that about? Well, for us, it's, it's been several years in, in the coming, actually, uh, that, uh, and I have, I have to credit um, a, a number of colleagues, but, but one of whom is, is currently our, our provost, Patricia Easton, but she was formerly the dean of arts and humanities. And when she was uh, dean, she really in, um, invested heavily and spent a lot of time and energy on creating our applied humanities programs. So uh, programs in museum studies and archival studies and arts management. And, and she really saw this in the early to mid 2000s that this, is, um, this was gonna be an area uh, where we needed to prepare our students and give them options. Uh, so, so I think she was visionary in this respect. And then that's just, um, those have been very successful programs. Our students have had great outcomes. They've been great students uh, as well. And so that has, change the culture within the faculty. And so then, uh, again, the, the students have led the way in the sense that they, they came into these programs, they went out and have had great career outcomes. They come back, we have interesting conversations, right? And so we're not afraid to admit that kind of student. And again, we, we know that that kind of student is going to enrich the program. Our classes are gonna be better. We're, we are happy to talk about those kinds of placements. As, as you said, oftentimes their salaries are, are, are better than uh, contingent faculty and, and others. And so we're just, um, it's, it's been several years in the making, but, but, but together we're, uh, we're really proud of, of that w without diminishing at all the ones who want to go on to the academic. So it doesn't have to be either or, right? We're, and, and it's not that we do it perfectly, but um, we're, so we're, we're proud of all of our children, right? Yeah, we, we love them all equally, right? And uh, uh, while recognizing that they're gonna have different strengths and, and go on to do other things. And for us, it's all part of the same thing that um, if, if you were intentional about broadening the outcomes for our students, then it starts with admissions. We have to be very conscious of that. And actually be, before that, it starts when any student makes an inquiry of us, we tell them about the variety of options that are available out there. So admissions is one step and the next step is really about discernment for students. 
to go through a process of discernment as they're going through the program where they're thinking about what skills are, am I gaining and why? What, what do I want to do? It, students change their minds. We all change our minds as we have new experiences. And that should not only apply to what the dissertation project is going to look like. Oh, I had this class and now I think I need to shift and use this theorist, but it should go way beyond that, I think. For, for me, the, I think reasonableness of this is very personal. I was raised by two people with, uh, who had done graduate work who did non-academic things and saw them put it to work implicitly and explicitly in their careers. My mother had a very rewarding career in the Smithsonian after having a, getting a medieval French degree and being unable to find a job. And, um, and I know that that, you know, she was working with very, you know, egotistical, powerful people with PhDs. And it really mattered that she could hold her own in that context and, and enabled her to do her job um, as well as to be you know, to, to be participate as an administrator in the, you know, content development work as well. And my, my father was a, in the real estate business with an English uh, background. Um, and he brought, a, I think, something to that very different business that his clients appreciated. You know, he, he kind of civilized a, a pretty sometimes uncivilized business. Um, and, and so to me, it's just very intuitive that we should think of of academic life, not merely as a kind of clear path, career path, but this is a matter of building like full people, right? A PhD can be a path to personhood. And uh, I, I, I would like to see us think about, about uh, these things more in those terms, that this is not simply, you know, a career path as much as we want to support uh, uh, students in pursuing their career paths, but this is about uh, this is something that, you know, a well-rounded human being might want to do um, as a means of just being a better kind of human being wherever they find themselves. I have a slightly different thing to, to add into this because I, since I don't have a PhD program, I don't have the same kind of response, but I'm thinking about my experience through my own PhD programs in the 80s and the advising we got for looking for jobs in, which consisted of one of the senior professors saying, well, when I was on the market, Professor X from Harvard called Professor Y from Berkeley, <laughs> and the next thing I knew I had a job. Uh, and we're like, thank you, that's really helpful. <laughs> and uh, nobody said anything about any of this stuff during those, during those years. And as a result, as it turned out, I was on the job market five years myself, and I was lucky and I got sort of a temporary postdoc and temporary this, temporary that. And after six years, I finally found a job. But I did not have a plan B, period. And, I, and at one point, I was going to go to Czechoslovakia and teach English for the Peace Corps. Actually, I almost did that one time. Then I got a postdoc and did that instead. So um, I'm like the worst case example of what not to do along these lines. Some of it is my fault, and some of it was the fault of institutions at the time, which simply there's zero, zero conversation about any of this. I think there's more conversation now, but I'm trying to determine, because I'm not in a PhD program, so I don't know. I'm trying to determine what the state of that conversation is and how widespread it is. I'm thinking, so we have our professional history publications that I get, and there's often articles about alt-oc careers and that kind of thing. And I'm not sure, I don't know how much that translates down into the actual graduate training 
I think it does at some places, and maybe particularly uh, some of the more elite institutions, perhaps it doesn't. I don't know. But it's just a question to, to put up. I, well, from my own experience, I would say fits and starts, and it depends on where you are. I mean, I'm incredibly excited to hear what Claremont is doing, um, which is a lot more than I've heard from most places. Um, uh, yeah, my own program, uh, there really wasn't any conversation about non-academic careers. And in fact, I was advised by the first faculty person I told that I was thinking about a non-academic outcome myself not to tell my advisor. Um, I will now say I did tell my advisor and he was fine with that and was very supportive, although he then was like, well, but you know, I don't really you know, have a lot I can do to help you with that, but he was fine. Um, but in terms of preparation, I think a lot of places are still struggling with what that means. Um, and also how it's good for departments, which is part of why I love hearing you, know, you talking, Patrick, about how you're finding that this enriches your classrooms. Um, to be really blunt, since we've already talked a little bit about money out here, up here in terms of salary, um, I think maybe there has to be more conversation about departmental bottom lines. Um, and I wonder if maybe one reason that Claremont seems to be really getting out in front of this is because you're a graduate only institution. Intuition driven. And if you don't have graduate students, you don't exist. And I think that it's important to think about the fact that if we in the humanities and social sciences don't show people that there is value added in other places besides the terrible academic market to getting a graduate degree in the humanities and social sciences, you don't have graduate programs in the humanities and social sciences anymore. Yeah. Um, so I, I, and I actually have, I talked with someone who was in a session a couple of days ago that I was not part of and was not part of applied religious studies who said that they actually talked to someone whose institution is really trying to get out ahead of this and that has been part of a motivating factor is telling faculty, well, think about this. If we don't have students coming in, we don't have money coming in and we don't have seats and we don't have budgets and we don't have tenure lines. Um, so we have to show people that there's value to these graduate programs. Um, so how much have you seen that coming into the conversations and the spaces that you're in? Is that something we talk about? I mean, I know we're not supposed to talk about money in the life of the mind, <laughs> but you know, it is a reality. I, I am someone who does, I, I deal with spreadsheets. I, I figured out Excel long before I finished my PhD program and it has served me well. So mm -hmm. I think in these terms, but how much are you seeing those conversations happen if at all in your spaces? I think you're probably right that the schools who are more progressive, like Claremont and the Joint PhD, and who are really trying to open things up, also have got a tuition-driven kind of situation. Um, so, so there's a motivation there, um, but I think it goes way beyond that. Oh yeah, towards. I don't want to say this is an either-or. I definitely don't. Yeah. Um, Another thing that we really haven't touched on is um, the, the role that can be played by the career services mm -hmm. in our institutions, which tend to think automatically along these broader lines and have a lot to offer as professionals in the career services area. So I assume that other institutions also are using those services for PhD students, which I think for a long time was not considered the way to do it. it. All mentoring had to be from the dissertation advisor to the student. And that really is not how we're thinking about it 
now. There's, there are a lot of um, supportive uh, kinds of uh, organizations that we can provide for our faculty as mentors, but also within the institution to look at the career services. Aurora is another example, or Imagine PhD. This is just a moment to plug, especially for people who aren't in the room and might be listening to this later. Um, in 2019, AAR is going to launch a partnership with Aurora, which is an e-learning platform with Beyond the Professoriate, which is a career advising service and online community. And all AAR members will have free access. Um, it's a trial year, so everybody tell your students, everybody get out and use it because they're going to decide whether or not to renew based on usage. Um, but everyone will be able to log in and use all of their services, including skill building webinars and training self-paced training modules, but also um, community building. They've got, uh, I think, close to 100 video interviews with PhDs who've gone into non-academic careers talking about what they studied, where they've ended up, how they got there, and why they're happy about it. Um, and they offer opportunities to network within that framework. And then Imagine PhD was launched last year, and it's a more self-paced online tool, but is free access and uh, has skill assessments, interest assessments, values assessments, and then takes people's responses and introduces them to career families where people with graduate training in humanities and social sciences um, have ended up and then provides them with um, further scaffolding. So like, oh, you're interested in this career family. Here are, where the, here are the places you go to look for those jobs. Here are what those uh, job descriptions look like. Here are some examples of resumes and cover letters that PhDs have used in the past to get jobs in this field, so you can see examples. Um, so those are both available uh, online. And again, since this is still a conversation that people aren't necessarily willing to be seen walking into the room to have, it's really great that they're accessible to people remotely. I, I think it's possible to imagine a future where, uh, where PhD programs could be in a sense, a kind of recruiting uh, uh, tool and strategy. At, in my experience, our career services, for instance, despite all their hard work and goodwill, um, even for my master's students, are really have not been that helpful. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's because it's a fundamentally different market. Here, we're shipping, switching from employers looking for a kind of mass unformed, unformed undergraduate mass to uh, uh, employers looking for you know, trained uh, uh, adult professionals. And it, those are two very different, mm -hmm. you know, recruiting needs. And, and I think there is actually a business model in recruiting, you know, the higher level here that, that you know, I think, I think our programs could take advantage of, you know, mm -hmm. um, but that requires a different kind of relationship building. I think at the moment, uh, especially since graduate programs tend to be small enough for this to be manageable that, Unfortunately, the onus, I think, remains a great deal on faculty to help play that role. And, and um, you know, I would encourage those who have students doing this or who want to be more supportive to just reflect on your own assets. You know, reflect on your own relationships in your community and maybe turn some friendships into kind of networks. Um, if you have friends who are uh, uh, in businesses or organizations or uh, uh, government agencies that have any remote relationship to what you think about and do, have a conversation with them about who they're looking for. Mm -hmm. Have a conversation with them about how they recruit their professionals, right? And, um, and think about whether there's an interface between, 
between what you do and what they do that your students could pass through. Um, I, I think at this point, um, you know, that, that's, that's still a vital starting point to, to extend that practice of, of mentor placement to the professional world. Um, and it requires, you know, in some cases, that extra step of being willing to, um, to understand a bit more uh, about how a potential employer uh, might see your students. Also using, uh, so not only our own networks, but our alumni networks, right? right, right. So, so digging into, as you said, I mean, I think I'm sure every one of our programs have people who have gone on and done lots of different things. And so bringing them back to campus, uh, having them meet with students to talk about their path, right? Uh, that, that's going to be so much more informative for students than like what I might guess the path could possibly be, right? <laughs> um, and, uh, and we've had great success with that. We, um, we have a great relationship with our career development office. I mean, I, uh, and again, we're a graduate only, and so that's our, the office is geared towards that. I recognize it's probably going to be different at most places that are serving primarily undergraduates. But, um, but, I, but, but even on our campus, there's always a kind of tendency for it to lean towards like the business school or something. And um, I just refuse to cede that ground. Uh, and and our director of our development office has been terrific, right? She um, she has a PhD herself, uh, and and so she she has met my energy and coming in just last week. She came and did a a, 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 tra a career development workshop for our our students, and so she um, she's been very responsive, and, and her staff have been. But I, I think the gravity will always be towards you know, the, the business school or some of these other things. So, so we have to do, we do have to be proactive in terms of getting their attention and getting them to develop programming that is specific for our students. Um, and uh, we've had good luck with Imagine PhD. I look forward to seeing what Aurora has to offer. So those, mm -hmm. are, those are great tools. I would also say we, um, we had a representative from the University of Chicago's UChicago grad program on one of our panels last year. And that's some really interesting programming where they went out and got a grant from NEH to develop career services specifically for PhDs looking at non-academic careers. And they have a whole subset, UChicago grad is specifically for people in the humanities. And they're trying to do things like develop internships yeah. or provide some seed funding for you know humanities scholars who want to go out and try something out in a non-academic space. Um, and there's a lot of information. It's not all publicly available, but they have a lot that's available. So it's nice that there are some resources that are developing and having success and, and that it can be a model that we can point maybe career services officers who haven't quite gotten there yet toward um, to help them think about things that can help students um, so you mentioned alumni. Um, do all of your programs track outcomes of students who don't end up in academic careers? We certainly try to. Okay. Yeah, our alumni tracking so it's hit, <laughs> yeah. hit and miss. <laughs> Actually, the ones who are sometimes non-academic are easier to find because they usually are on LinkedIn and right. so, so that, that sometimes academics uh, don't do. So. Our tracking consists of, hey, did you hear about so-and-so <laughs> just got a job doing right. so-and-so? That's about it. Honestly. Yeah. We're, we're a new college. We're working on it, but that's certainly the yeah. intention. That definitely seems like something that everybody I've talked to recognizes as an opportunity for growth, but no one has quite stepped into it yet. You know, like, let's find out where everybody is and systematically track them to build those networks 
And I'm going to say this again. This is probably the fifth or sixth time I've said this on a session, this AAR. It's one of my themes this year is networking isn't a dirty word. I feel like <laughs> academics think that networking is like a bad thing or the word somehow evokes like unpleasant images. Um, but networking isn't going to weird, awkward, you know, hand out your business card to strangers events as much as I think everyone thinks it is. It's like, hey, you know, uh, we, we had someone a couple of years ago who was encouraging faculty to think about the broader ecosystems in which they do their work. You don't just talk to professors, you talk to people at publishing houses totally. and I, journals yeah. and foundations that give you grants. Mm -hmm. And you talk to your development office and you have to talk to the administrators in the dean's office. You know, we actually all have much broader communities around us that we can bring into the conversation. And I just don't think we think of leveraging them that way. But um, yeah, tracking. On the, on the alumni side, the one thing we did uh, this past year that was successful, we haven't quite mobilized it, but we just used a, a student worker. I mean, we, we, produced, we ran a report of all the alumni from the past 10, 15 years, I forget what we did. And then just, and, and the report was just like names and the information we had, which was horribly incomplete. And then gave it to a student worker, student workers are cheap. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and that student worker went on LinkedIn and, and went and, and tried to, and, and we were able to populate uh, that list with so much more information. Actually, she, she made a bunch of phone calls, right? Uh, to, to track them down. So we haven't, so now we have a much richer database for a very minimal investment in terms of, of uh, how much it, it cost to create that data. And our central alumni office was never gonna do that. We, we had to do that in, internally and, and use our own students to do it. We went through the same process in the same way and it also was very successful in creating a starting place. But I'm also really happy that the university now is um, systematically right. contacting students at three months six months, one year, five years, 10 years. In, and you have to do it that fast because it's very mobile at that moment. Right after one gets one's PhD, you're gonna move around some. So it, that is gonna help us to stay on top of where they are. So I'm interested, Annette, you mentioned um, this programming you did where you brought in someone who was working in IT and had them sort of present what their life looks like and how they feel like they use their graduate training. But then you did actually skills workshopping mm -hmm. that afternoon with the opportunity for ongoing skill building. Right. Um, are there other ways in which your programs are doing these sorts of things to get to the practical skills? I mean, you know, I mentioned spreadsheets. I learned them because I was a staff person doing budgets. but hey, grant writing workshops ought to include how to write a budget in a basic Excel template, right? Mm -hmm. So are there skill building workshops or things that, that you're doing that are either career oriented or just like basic skills to be an academic mm -hmm. um, that are bringing some of these things in that we don't think of as traditionally academic? Our, our master's program has um, slots that are generally used by the students for skills courses. And our, because our program- as part, of, as part of their curriculum? Yeah, okay. yeah. So, the, so for instance, we're in media studies. They often take courses in journalism that are media production courses. None of us, uh, or few of us teach those skills. We're, we're a highly kind of critical human, humanities-oriented department. Uh, and, um, and that is the kind of core of what the students do. But we also 
really encourage them to do to to pick up skills at the master's level. And you know, we found that that um, that they've been successful PhD candidates as well. I, I think finding ways to integrate um, some of that skill building into the curriculum. Uh, you know, I know curricula are already packed and so forth already, but especially if you can integrate it with the kind of critical work that you also want them to be doing, um, uh, rather than just being a total aside, um, it, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it creates a, you know, a more well-rounded graduate student. We have a zero credit professional development course that students take to get some of those skills but also there's just always available a lot of workshops, online um, skill building kinds of things, again, not for credit, mm -hmm. that students can choose to do. So it's a broad array of um, options. Our case is a little, it, it's interesting because we have, I have a lot of 35, 40, 45 year old students, a lot of adult students. So, and they, they often have done a lot of stuff. So, quite often in the military or sometimes in other things. And so uh, they need sort of both things. How do you take a, a resume that is full of all kinds of stuff that you've done, some of which has been pretty interesting, uh, like you've been a, uh, the, the first female helicopter pilot in the US Army. We had this as an MA student wow. uh, in our, our program. Uh, and how do you translate that to a CV? <laughs> because, so we, in, in a sense, we have to train some academic skills because they don't necessarily, or, or how to translate the stuff that they do into a, a format that is recognizable to, to, um, to an academic. And then on the other hand, then we, do, we have the other side as well. And so we do have um, all kinds of workshops on how do you do this? How do you do that? If you're going to do this, how, what skills do you need? Here's this person coming in from Museum X who's gonna tell you exactly what, what skills you need. So we're, we're pretty, I think we've been pretty hyper-conscious of that, largely because of our graduate director has been really good at, at organizing those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it's also, um, I think it works both ways in terms of here's, you need this kind of academic skill because this, this document is gonna be useful for you for all kinds of things. And then those, those of you who have the academic skills, you're going to need these other things, whether, whether it's Excel or whether it's mm -hmm. learning how to use a video, make a YouTube videos or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it, it works both ways. Yeah. We're in the early phases of uh, conversation with both our um, uh, business school and uh, our program in human resources management, because there's tons of jobs in human resources right now. Uh, the, that actually uh, uh, really uh, can capitalize on the kinds of skills that, that we train students with. So we're in the early phases of thinking about what would it look like to put together a little cluster of courses um, that would give students, uh, give humanities students and religious studies students uh, the basic skills and content they need uh, either on the management side or on the human resources side and uh, between eight and 12 units whether it would fit into their existing curriculum or be supplemental to it, whether it'd be a certificate or not. So we're, we're still trying to figure out exactly what the, that's gonna look like. Um, but taking advantage of the resources we have in other places around campus to, to again, what we don't want to do is dilute the religion degree or dilute the history degree, right? The, the, the value that we are adding when we put these people into the, into the marketplace is they are highly trained professionals you know, in the, in the field of specialization. 
that they have. So they didn't just come take three or four history classes or religion classes, right? They, they, uh, this is a real MA, real PhD in religious studies. But how do we supplement that with some of these other skills um, uh, to, to maybe make them attractive uh, it, to, to other employers? So uh, maybe check back with me next year uh, to, to see how those conversations uh, have, have developed. I'll look forward to it. Yeah. Um, so I want to be a little conscious of time because um, Annette is going to have to leave us a bit early to get back to teach a class this afternoon. This mm. is the peril of inviting yeah. local people to be on our panel. Um, and I have a flight to catch. So, um, and I want to give time for audience questions if you have any. But I also want to ask you guys, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you think we should have? Did I miss anything? Do you have questions for each other? I just wanted to add one thing. Based on, uh, actually, I should have said this in my last comment. Um, I think some of these things can be built into the actual classroom environment. So one thing that I've started doing is asking students to give presentations on how you would teach topic X, but not in the college environment, but in the, just to the world at large. And not because you're gonna teach topic X to the world at large, but because you need to learn how to translate complicated stuff to a public audience. Mm -hmm. And so, if it's something about the Battle of Gettysburg, because I'm doing the Civil War right now, or if it's whatever, the politics of reconstruction. And what I consistently find is, so they're, they're pretty good at transmitting the content, and they have no idea how to make a good PowerPoint slide. Because it's, it's so they put a whole bunch of words and stuff, and it's like, that's exactly what you're not supposed to. So, and then I'll, I'll, I'll send them comments like, content's great, I love it, because I'm a history professor, of course I love all the details. But I, I, I said, to a public audience, and they can't listen to you and read all that stuff on your slide at the same time. It's impossible. And so what I'm gonna to suggest to you in the future is as you move along, think about developing a skill of public presentation that is for a different kind of audience. Mm -hmm. uh, and I put a lot of emphasis on that because you're, gonna, you're very likely gonna be doing some, some kind of form of that for something in the future. Yeah, I'd underscore that, the building it into the curriculum. So I taught a course a year, year and a half ago on um, religion, conflict, and peace building. And I brought in uh, somebody who, who had a 20-plus year career as a foreign service officer in, in the Middle East who came in and taught the students on how to write a policy memo. And then, and then the students had to do group projects, which they hated doing. They thought as graduate students, they were beyond the group project. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, in groups to, to write a policy memo. Um, and uh, they, they did, were not happy at the beginning, uh, but they were happy at, at the end, uh, having had the experience. Uh, but also, you know, I, I don't write policy memos. Uh, well, I, I do a lot of it administrative like academic uh, memos but but that kind of state department level uh, memo I didn't have the skills to teach I could go online but it wasn't the same as had bringing in a professional into the classroom to, to actually teach them how to, how to um, a different kind of writing right those collaborations are key I, I assign collaboration in my course you know in my courses students have to interact with people in the outside world and that means on the one hand um, respecting non-academics as people with intellectual contributions that might be relevant to their work and that can help frame their questions. Uh, and then second, uh, those have led to relationships that uh, have led to further research projects or even employment. Um, getting people off campus as part of their coursework um, you know, can help those organic connections to form. Great, great. 
So to our, to our small and mighty audience, do you have any questions for the group? If you would please come up to the microphone so that we can make sure to share this with our podcast as well. Hi, is this good? Yes. Okay. Um, are there certain subfields where you think it's harder to train people for outside the academy than others? Um, you know, I, 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 ask, I should say I ask this as a philosopher, so. No, but I think subfields can determine the direction that one goes outside of the academy. So in other words, or even within it. So let's set aside the tenure track job as one thing. And there are a lot of other great opportunities within the academy too. So for instance, someone who has a background in pastoral care might be hired to do advising academic advising, because in our times, there is such a need for people to do that who really understand how to work with students who are uh, dealing with terrible stress, anxiety, suicide, and just all kinds of things that are different today than they were at one time. So I do think that the subfield you're in will push a person one direction or another a little more easily. Um, People in Bible, for instance, might find themselves involved in a museum as a place for teaching, teaching beyond the academy, but teaching nevertheless. I, th I think Nathan's earlier comment about it, sort of inverting the pyramid is really helpful here, right? So, so yeah, I mean, your expertise on Schleiermacher, what's that, you know, th there are not a lot of other places out in, in the world where, where that's gonna be particularly relevant. But I think about all the things that philosophers of religion or philosophers do in terms of, of the critical thinking, the, you, know, uh, you know, everything that goes into that, right? Um, that is widely applicable uh, in, in lots of different areas. So, so it's, it's about changing the narrative of, of um, not just changing the narrative, but, but being self-aware and, and confident in the, in the kinds of things that philosophers do or critical theorists and other things like that. There also has to be a willingness to, to speak other languages and not just our highly insular jargon-laden uh, language. In, in, in that case, we do our graduate students a great service in terms of training them for the academy, a disservice in training them for communicating with anybody outside the academy. So, so we have to help them um, learn to be multilingual, uh, not just monolingual. I would add, as um, someone who's married to a philosopher uh, <laughs> who is not working in the academy, uh, don't just think about inverting the pyramid of your skill set, but also what motivated you to go into a graduate program in the first place? Why did you choose this subject area? What brought you toward your field? What, what were your motivations um, in asking the questions you're asking? So um, my husband did a master's degree in religion, philosophy, and ethics with a focus on the ethics of suffering in post-Holocaust Jewish thought. Um, that's not on his resume. But after he got out and worked at Starbucks for a while, because he had a master's in philosophy, and yes, the stereotype <laughs> holds, um, and he, he realized that he was still very concerned with ethics of suffering and wanted to do something about it. So he's now a social worker. So it wasn't the content necessarily, but it was what motivated him to ask those questions in the first place, and then thinking about the skill set and where it could be applied. Um, I think it, that we don't, uh, I really love the Imagine PhD values assessment because I think we're really bad in graduate programs at asking people, well, what do you want to do? 
We ask, what do you want to think about? But we don't ask, what do you want to do? Do you want to teach? Do you actually enjoy being alone and researching a project all the time? I actually found out I didn't. I found the process of dissertating incredibly isolating. Um, and I'm a very social creature. It wasn't, it was not my favorite. Um, but we don't ask those questions in grad school and that values assessment can help you start to at least think about, you know, um, and it's not a static thing. I would say take one, you know, take it now and go back six months from now as you've been thinking about this more and take the values assessment again and see how it might change. But it helps you start to think about those questions um, that might help you broaden your thinking about what you might want to do in the world. And then how can you apply your philosophical thinking to it? And, and I think uh, faculty can play that role too of that quiz. You know, one thing when I have a new graduate student come, you know, come meet with me for the first time. One thing that I've, I, my favorite part has has been kind of to kind of stop the conversation before it gets started and ask a bit about their personal history and where they imagine themselves in in a way that really really opens up the conversation, right? And that doesn't presume anything. And then I get a sense of where they are, and then you can start accompanying them, right? Um, I, I think that's a way to, it's a way to set the tone of the relationship at the beginning to make sure that they know that you're open to wherever that they want to go. So I have um, a question and a comment. Uh, the question is uh, whether either you or people at your institutions have grappled with the um, I guess the responsibility that we are taking in so many graduate students with a shrinking market, uh, and whether anybody has at these institutions you're at um, really thought about, well, maybe we should cut the number of admissions we're making um, simply because it's really unethical, particularly if we're still um, talking about the narrative of sending uh, graduate students to hopefully tenure track positions, uh, which are getting smaller and smaller, fewer and fewer. Uh, whether maybe uh, institutions have actually started to do some of that. And the comment is, um, I've, I've heard really good things here, and thank you very much for this. I'm really um, <clears throat> um, pleased that so much seems to be going on and starting to happen. Uh, but I've, I've heard two sort of uh, trajectories. One, where the graduate work is part and parcel of human formation, uh, and that in itself can open up all sorts of other opportunities and doors. Um, and then the other would be um, uh, graduate work in religious studies that goes towards different kinds of jobs, as it were. It's just another form of training. Um, and I wonder whether there's a third possibility um, where graduate work in religious studies um, or the humanities in general, but I think religious studies in particular because it's so interdisciplinary, uh, is a great education for dealing with complex social phenomena and problems. Um, I think one of the things that we do really well is teach students how to use many different skills and methodologies in a non-reductionistic way. And that's something that, um, at least in my experience, uh, um, corporations, governments, NGOs, all kinds of people are really struggling to find ways to deal with complexity uh, in a non-reductionistic way. Uh, two of my own PhD students have gone on to develop a um, uh, consulting company, which I consult with, I help them with, uh, and they've gone on to do some work for cities in 
uh, you know, major uh, populations uh, with uh, multinational uh, companies, all dealing with complexity. So I, I think this idea of religious studies graduate training as a form of service in some ways to our society, particularly with complex issues, might be another way to spin uh, this way of, of thinking. Um, on the first question, I find that if we presume that we're not sending everyone to academic degrees, it helps alleviate the the um, the moral quandary, uh, and 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 also it in it when the people do surface who do know that this is what they want to do, it allows you to really focus on them and support them in that academic path, and uh, as well as you know what 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 others are doing, and 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 supporting those who are really self-selecting. There, I think, uh, uh, you know, makes sense, and it's usually. You know, in our, in, certainly in our master's program, it's a minority, and that feels right. You know, it should be, you know, my, it should be the people who really crave this that do it. Um, on the point of um, uh, of 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 specifying those skills, um, I, I tried this as an exercise a number of years ago, and did an essay that was in Religion Dispatches that's been used a lot in this kind of like why religious studies stuff called Why the World Needs Religious Studies. Um, and I think it is really, really important for us all to, in our minds, specify the particular skills we're learning. Just saying critical thinking, I think, is really not enough. Um, and we need to help students articulate those skills for when they have to go to the resume process, right? Um, uh, and, and know what are they what exactly are you picking up in the course of this? And I think the way, you know, one example of that is that kind of non reducible complexity that you just articulated. So thank you for that. But I, I think specifying as much as we can what skills we're, we're imparting is important. About a month ago, there was a meeting of the directors of uh, PhD programs in religious and theological studies in Indianapolis. Uh, there were about 50 programs represented out of what they believe are 80 altogether in the United States. And we reported out to each other um, about what our graduates are doing and what size we are and have been. So it was very interesting to hear that many, many of our programs find that about 30% of their graduates are in tenure track jobs. 30% are doing pastoral work or part-time teaching and part something else. 30% um, approximately are in other kinds of careers. So that was, that was very interesting to learn. Also, more than half of our programs have chosen to become smaller. That was true for the joint PhD. In 2015, we decided we needed to be much smaller. Actually, it was earlier than that that we made the decision, but by 2015, we had figured out how to do it. So we are uh, about half the size that we used to be. We only accept 10 students coming in. And just like Claremont, we're very conscious about accepting students who have an idea of what they might want to do that isn't necessarily about tenure track jobs. I would just add, so, you know, in addition to networking is not a dirty word being a theme of my AAR this year, um, another theme that I've heard over and over again in the sessions that Applied Religious Studies uh, hosted is that people who have moved into um, non-academic spaces are often driven by a sense of education as a public good. And I've heard this out of the mouths of people who are in academic administration, 
um, and I would include myself in that category. I have heard this from people who are doing um, teaching in other environments. I have heard this from people who are writing for a general readership and aren't actively teaching right now, but they see their writing as educating. Um, so I think that for a lot of people who have been moving into these spaces, um, you know, let's be frank, the income can be a lot better and we all have loans to pay. And that's definitely a motivator. But also I think for a lot of us, there's this sense that um, in some ways the academy can be isolating and the academy can be very focused on abstract thought and research. And we want to have a sense of that public good of doing out in the world. So I think that's very much been a theme this year for me of what I'm hearing from people who are in a wide variety of places. And I think it's you know um, true of people I talk to all the time who are in ap applied religion spaces. Um, it just was really a dominant part of the conversation this year. So I think that's a really good point, that there's this sense of we have something to offer to the world and we can do good with it. And a lot of people who end up out there um, are driven by that in whole or in part. Yeah, when you fight the narrative that if you go to graduate school uh, and don't end up becoming a professor, that somehow those years were wasted. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, in, in fact, uh, one of the recent reports that I read, I can't remember where it came from, uh, so that's like horrible practice. Something I read somewhere uh, says, uh, but uh, it, it tracked uh, satisfaction of uh, people who had gotten PhDs as a longitudinal study. Uh, those who went into academic careers and non-academic careers. And um, uh, five, 10 years out, uh, the satisfaction levels were essentially equal. And it, I think it was close to margin of error, but those who had non-academic careers um, were just as satisfied, if not more, at, and said that they would go back and do it all over again. Uh, one to three years out, that's not true. So those who did not get academic jobs, their levels of satisfaction is much lower than those who got tenure track. But, but five, 10, 15 years out, when they finally found their other career and then had a chance to reflect back on the value that it had for them, they, th I mean, it, this was like in the 70s and 80s percent where they were saying they would, they would do, all, do it all over again and not change it. And, and so uh, every school's gonna make its own decisions, but, but like you, Chrissy, I'm a little worried if, if, um, if the overall trend, especially at elite institutions, is to say we're going to have fewer um, graduate students. A lot of times it's driven by internal finance. So I, I get all of that. But, but you have to think about what's the value proposition behind that, too. Are we mm -hmm. devaluing the work that we do? Mm -hmm. um, and I would uh, also note, I don't think that it's inevitable that people three years out, one to three years out, who don't get the academic position have to be unhappy. No, no, no. I think that we're helping to make them unhappy by right. not having this conversation and not providing resources and supports and respecting other outcomes. Right. And so hopefully by continuing to have these conversations, we can eliminate that one to three year dissatisfaction. Not that everybody's gonna be thrilled one to three years out, right? But if non-academic careers become frankly respectable within the academy and within graduate programs, which I think they are very much not always right now, um, that strong dissatisfaction at that one to three year mark disappears because that's a really hard time of transition, especially if you haven't had resources and don't feel like you've got support. Um, Karen Kelsky presented for us yesterday. Uh, she's the professor is in. She's got a career advising platform that operates largely online. Um, but, you know, one of the things she talked about, which was very striking to me, especially someone who has studied um, 
conservative religious communities and people who leave them, um, you're losing a lot of your community right now when you choose to take a non-academic path. And that was very much my experience. A lot of people just stopped talking to me. It was like I was radioactive, like they could catch it. <laughs> they could catch my academic failure. Hi, I'm an academic failure. Um, and proud of it, actually. But um, yeah, so there's this, you, there's this sense that you lose your community because people don't know what to talk to you about and people are afraid to be seen with you because then other people might think they're not serious scholars because you clearly weren't. And I think that we can erase some of that stigma and really work at reducing that, that one to three year dissatisfaction. I think another, another strategy for that is, is, and I know nobody here is guilty of it, but, but uh, th there's, there's a culture of kind of infantilizing of graduate students that I think is connected to this kind of history of kind of replicating oneself, breaking them down until, you know, and reconstructing them as, as, a, as a clone. And I think that, that in order for this kind of model to work, you need to have a culture of respect for your grad, graduate students. Uh, as a as a core value. Amen. Uh, so something that really that that pains me is is you know often when professionals come to me you know young professionals who are considering doing a PhD those are the people I really warn because they've had respect in their adult lives and and you know you have to warn them you you might end up losing you know have having a few years there where you're not feeling that and you know just met with a. a, a you know, a former colleague who just who's in a PhD program, she she's doing great, but the first few years were really hard because she had gone from being a successful professional to, you know, you know, being a, a, a kind of servant. Uh, and uh, and and, you know, in, in order to to draw in people who have the skills that will create a rich cohort, create uh, uh, plant the seed in each other's minds of possibilities, you know, we need to make the PhD a conducive and, and, and welcoming place for people who are used to, to being respected. I also do. <laughs> Sorry. That's a, that's, I don't know, that's a very high bar. <laughs> like human dignity? What? Nathan, I also think that your own strategy when you were not in the Academy of staying connected through AAR and other professional organizations is a great strategy for doing that. And it will be a blessing to everybody who is in the academy if we think of our organization as being much more diverse and broad. Yeah. Any other questions, comments, remarks for the good of the order? Yes, please. Yeah. I just want to thank you guys for putting this on. This has really clarified my crossroads moment. I think this has been, this is all conference. Um, if it wasn't for a travel grant, I wouldn't even be here. Um, so thank you for that. Uh, but my first question is, I have a lot of ex-grad students who come up to me and they're in great jobs. They work for state, they work for think tanks, and they say, hey, I'm thinking of becoming a teacher when I be do the PhD and go through that tunnel we were talking about yesterday. Yeah. I respect them too much to say, no, don't do this. And I, I feel like I'd be lying to myself if I said, no, go for it. You know, you've got the passion, you can drive through. One more, my question is, what do, you, what do you really tell them? Because the job market, as we all know, sucks. My second question is, I'm pretty much committed to doing an all act career now, probably in consulting or maybe in publishing. Um, how do you keep your eye on the academic fire? 
besides the networking, besides coming to AAR, I found this for the past year I've been an independent scholar, the walls of the ivory tower are very high and your legitimacy comes through the university, the academy, so forth. How do you, you know, stay in with them? How do you still get that respect? Thank you. I don't know if publishing and scholarship is something that is something that you would want to continue with, but that is also a way that one gets that kind of respect. And you certainly don't need to be in the academy to be publishing with great publishers. Um, I would say first, you know, start by thinking about broadening what does that academic respectability, how do you define that academic respectability? Um, and I say that again as, you know, my theme is education as, you know, a public good. Um, I, we had a workshop on Friday of folks who are writing for a general audience and we began the morning with sort of skill building. How do you write our content for a broader audience? But then in the afternoon, we brought in several people who've been very successful um, in various ways in doing that. And uh, none of them is in a permanent teaching position right now. And they're all very, very happy. And they're all publishing a lot in a variety of venues. Um, and they're also publishing what they want to, when they want to, which is really liberating. Um, so thinking about that, and honestly, I think showing up in these spaces and insisting that you deserve respect is important. I mean, that's part of why I'm here. <laughs> um, so, and as for the question about, I get asked a lot, should I do a PhD? And I think people come to me to get the, well, do you think it was a waste of your time since you're not teaching now uh, question. And one of the first things I say is don't do it if they're not paying for it. <laughs> That's really important, and I don't think we talk about it enough. Um, you know, and, and then the other question is, what are you going to do with that? What does it do for you? Um, because and I, I'm working at Harvard Law School now, and I've been really impressed with the fact that in the last 10 years, they've even in a law school in a vocational setting um, flipped the script on their admissions. And they used to, 10, 15 years ago, they were admitting 75% of their new students straight out of an undergraduate degree, and 25% of their students roughly were coming from um, a profession, had some work experience. And they very intentionally and very quickly flipped that. And so now they're admitting roughly 25% of people who are coming straight out of undergrad, um, and 75% are coming out of a career. And they've done that in part because you know, the JD job market is actually the old truism that, oh, I'll just go to law school and that way I'll get a job. That's not true anymore either. You can't count on that. Um, but people who are coming out of professional, professional backgrounds know why they want the JD and what it will do for them in a way that people who are coming straight out of undergrad don't. And so I've really started asking people, well, what are you going to do with it? What does it do for you? How does it help you get, what is your end game? Um, if your end game is to credential yourself to get into a space you don't currently have access to, that may be worth it. Um, but if it's, well, you know, I just think it would be kind of cool, or I've actually had people say to me, well, you know, I think I can, then I tell them that that's not really a good enough answer, especially if there's going to be any debt involved. 
And not, and not to say, you know, there are lots of things you can do with it and that it can do for you. I, again, I don't want to say I think that we should just like burn it all to the ground and there should be no more graduate degrees. I'm absolutely not that person. Um, but people need to know what they're going to do with it, I think. Or to imagine possibilities. Yes. Because usually you don't know right. for sure going in what you're going to end up doing or what the opportunities will be that will open up while you're there. So. I also tell students who are thinking about this not to close doors, to think about all the opportunities, all the possibilities, all the things that they want to get from it. So it's, it is a credential, but it's not only that. If we were spending all that money just for a piece of paper, it really wouldn't be worth it. So I think what has been said several times is that there, there is a lot that can be gained through a program that is transferable to all kinds of different pathways that what I hope is happening in the academy is that we are starting to think ourselves about that broader spectrum and not thinking, okay, the, the path A is I'm going to go get to tenure track and all the others are path B or C or D. I don't think of it that way. I think there are a lot of things that you can learn from any PhD program and that you should be thinking about those skills and those kinds of knowledge bases and the kinds of connections you're going to make. That's networking. That is your network when you're in school. Um, and that will continue past it. So I see a lot of value. There are very good programs, and Claremont is one of them. The Joint PhD is another that do not pay the entire way for people who want to get a PhD. So I would take issue with your sense that if you're not being paid for it, and I've had students tell me that they've had faculty tell them that, or usually undergraduate faculty. Those undergraduate faculty were aware of a time period when that probably was somewhat true. These days, there are a few extremely well-endowed programs where everything's going to be paid for you, and they aren't going to accept anybody other than the five slots they've got that are fully paid. And then there are other programs where there are a lot more um, flexibility, let's say. But you're going to end up paying something for your education somewhere along the way, even if it's just moving there and finding a place to live. And, and, and I would just follow up and say, you think hard about how you're going to pay for that and how much yes. debt you can manage to Absolutely. incur. My husband and I both worked full time at Boston University in getting our graduate degrees because BU offered tuition remission to staff. We didn't sleep a lot. We didn't have a lot of date nights, but we graduated with a lot less debt than a lot of people we knew. And my husband was really adamant because he started his social work program and um, was almost immediately encouraged, even though they said they, they advertise a part-time track for people who are working. And then they immediately start telling people as soon as they're there, or at least this was true 10 years ago, well, now you need to quit your job and take out loans. You won't be able to do this degree if you don't do that. And my husband's response was, no, my job pays tuition remission, and I can't pay you $50,000 a year if I'm going to graduate and be a social worker. So thinking really hard about the financial outcomes and yes. what you can afford, I think, is the, and the way to respect that. Especially if we're, we're interested in taking on people with professional experience. You know, I met with somebody interested in our PhD program who works in the local startup community and wants to keep doing that, you know, I don't want her to be teaching, uh, uh, you know, doing TA ships if she can make more and be more engaged, uh, continuing to work and pay. 
um, I, I think we, we want to embrace the diversity of models there, and that enables us to, you know, better support those who, who uh, you know, don't have that opportunity. Um, and another, another feature of that question of, of, you know, where, as somebody who did that, you know, kind of worked, uh, uh, continued my work outside the academy, I think there's a lot of opportunity in precisely the problem we're describing, the kind of insularity, right? Um, what I found uh, was that was that there's a lot of really cool stuff happening in AAR that is not being well communicated outside, either in professional settings as a consultant, as you mentioned, for instance, or as a journalist, what I ended up mainly doing. Um, and that actually you, you can create, uh, the, the big question I would ask is where's the reciprocity? You know, how can you create value for the scholars that they're not able to create on their own for the scholarly community as serving as an interface with outside communities that don't even know the power of what's happening in here. I think there's tremendous opportunity. We, you know, we have a, um, you know, a former PhD graduate who had a tenure track job that he had to leave for, for family reasons. Um, and he started a company, uh, uh, a film production company, video production, helping scholars communicate their work and is, you know, doing extraordinary things with that. Um, I, you know, I think that that interface question is a space of opportunity. A couple of other responses to your question. One, on, on the first one, I mean, I just, I just don't think there's a, a uniform response to no, you discourage them because the job market sucks or yes, you encourage them because of course they should do it because they're smart and all that. And, and as we just seen from these responses, these are, these are very individualized conversations. So the guy I mentioned who went to the foreign service, so he, he really wanted to get a PhD in Chinese history. This guy was 40 with three children and he wanted to do like ethnic minority China. So he had to learn Uyghur and stuff like that. And I said, you know, that's, that's a tough road for you. <laughs> I think at the, at the point, of, and what you really want to do is, is become a student of a foreign culture. And there's other ways to do that, that um, aren't going to really mess up your family life that like this probably will. Uh, and that's, that's in fact what he did. I didn't suggest foreign service. I wasn't even thinking about it, but that's, that's I think planted a spark that got him in that direction. Um, and then on your second question, this is a very practical thing because I do this with some people sometimes. Um, if you can, as far as keeping your toe in the water, I think is what you're asking about. If, if you can find, if you have colleagues, connections, friends, networking, begging, whatever you have to do, if you can find a way to um, have some kind of access to the stuff that university libraries can give you when you're a faculty member there. And it's, I, I've actually done this for some people on Twitter. I just, I don't even know them personally. I just, they're just like Twitter friends. And they're like, I really need this article and it's only on JSTOR, can someone help me? I'm like, yeah, I can help you download it, send it, no problem. Um, but, and, and they, they educated me to the fact that, that I use a lot of stuff that I assume I have access to and I don't, and I forget that actually nobody else does. It's a privilege. Uh, and if, there, if there's a way to keep your, to, to have a connection, uh, to have someone make you a visiting whatever, we do this at my university, you're like the, a person of interest, that's what they're called at my university. That means we don't have to pay you anything. We have no connection to you, but you get a library card. And you'd get that because you're, you, you make up some kind of title. I've done that for some local scholars like that. And so they can go use JSTOR, that's why. And that's good, that, that's really valuable, I think. All right, well, um, we've lost one of our panelists to teaching 
and I am myself going to have to jet in a few minutes to catch a plane. So who would like the last question? Or would any of my remaining panelists like to make a final comment? Boy, it really is the end of the day on Monday at AAR, isn't it? <laughs> all right, well, everybody, I just want you to uh, thank you for being here and finding us all the way in the back corner of the Convention Center. And uh, please join me in thanking our remaining panelists for being with us today. Thank you.